0: You turn your Bibles to Job, the book of Job. Our scripture reading will come from verses 1 through 22 in the book of Job. The book of Job. This morning, for the next month or so, We will be covering a series of uh, messages on the subject of counseling one another. How to counsel, how to help, how to encourage in a biblical way, how to help people with their problems, how people change the state of biblical counseling today, as well as the sin that so easily besets us that is the cause of our suffering in this world indirectly and directly. So we begin this particular series with a subject that affects us all, and that is of suffering, of suffering, which is a part of God's sovereign purpose. And we look into the book of Job. Our reading will begin in verse 1, and it will end in verse 22. Job chapter 1, verse 1. It reads, There was a man in the land of Uz." whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. They would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord says to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day that his, when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. The Sabaeans attacked and took them, and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While, I was, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell on the young people. And they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is our desire, Lord, to be righteous and blameless in your sight, to respond to suffering and tragedy in a way that pleases you, neither to blame you nor to sin. So I pray, Father, that you would help us to learn From your servant Job, that we might be godly individuals, open our eyes, O God, that we might see once again great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Suffering is something that everyone in this world will face. Suffering is something that everyone will not escape. Everyone faces adversity, everyone faces problems, everyone faces suffering, whether it be in your life or someone else's life. Job, verse 7 of chapter 5, tells us, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. We see that all around of our world, from war to famine to pestilence to problems with friends and relatives to problems with people in general, problems in the church, People have financial disasters, educational disappointments, tragedies from natural disasters, quote-unquote, persecution for one's faith. All of these things infect the earth. They are all aspects of suffering, especially physical suffering. When physical maladies come, it causes people to ask the question, why does God allow good people to suffer? why does God allow suffering, period? Or even as we have studied the Old Testament, it arises, how could God condemn and wipe all of those people groups out in the Old Testament, whether it be the Canaanites or other people who would be there in particular groups? Or it comes back to the question is how could God flood the entire earth and wipe out the entire population in the book of Genesis? Not an uncommon question about suffering, those questions, of course, presume presume something. It presumes that we are good people or innocent people, that there are people in God's eyes who are undeserving of tragedy or suffering. Most people think of themselves as good individuals. We think to ourselves, we deserve to be blessed. We think to ourselves, we deserve good things. After all, I haven't done anything terrible. We think to ourselves, we deserve to be happy or we deserve to have a long life. And furthermore, God owes that to me. And we come across towards God as someone who is inherently entitled. And we think, it's not fair. It's not fair. Biblical counselor and author Wayne Mack writes in his book, It's Not Fair, quote, "'From years of personal and counseling experience,' I know that nothing is more damaging to us spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and behaviorally than responding to the unpleasant, unwarranted, and in our judgment, undeserved circumstances of life with the quote, unquote, it's not fair attitude. It eats away at us like cancer or leprosy. It is a killer that destroys our joy, hope, Faith, love, and usefulness for Christ. And from years of personal knowledge and counseling experience coupled with biblical knowledge, I also recognize that nothing is more helpful to us in overcoming the tragic results of being infected with the, quote-unquote, it's not fair attitude than possessing the knowledge of who and what God really is and the implications of that knowledge. And he continues to write and give us examples from the scriptures about those who would throw up their hands, so to speak, and say it's not fair. The story of Rachel, who was barren, who didn't have children, and Leah, her sister, who kept having children, and she would blame Jacob and say it's not fair. How come she has all of the kids and I don't? Or the older brother... In the prodigal son parable, the older brother, after his younger brother, had taken his inheritance and squandered it and had come back, and the, and the father welcomed him back, killed the fattened calf, and the older brother comes in anger and says, it's not fair. Why does he deserve that? Why didn't you ever give those things to me? But so The parable of the workers, the workers who agreed to a certain pay early on in the day, they agreed to work for a certain pay. And yet, there were workers who came later in the day, and they all got paid the same amount, crying out, it's not fair. Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness, it's not fair. Look, back in Egypt, we had leeks and onions, and here we have this dry manna, or whatever it might be. Jeremiah said it when he was oppressed because of the message of destruction that he gave that prophesied. And we parrot the same thing, don't we? We all parrot the same thing when we say, he doesn't deserve that. We say, that is just so, so wrong. We say, that's horrible, totally not right. Somebody else is getting the credit that I deserve, that's not fair. I always get the short end of the stick. Why do I always get the short end of the stick? I didn't do anything wrong. I'm the victim here. The teacher doesn't like me, it's so unfair. They like you. We cry unfair and complain because what? We think our suffering, our circumstances are undeserved, and ultimately, who are we angry at? We're angry at God who has brought these things into our lives, and we cry, it's unfair. And rather than being grateful, rather than being thankful, rather than being full of gratitude towards God for what we have, we look and say, it's not fair for what we don't have. Every breath that we breathe. Every day that we live, every meal that we eat, we open our refrigerator and see that it's full of food, and yet we are so easily discontent, so easily grumbling against God, so easily complaining when God does not give us what we think we deserve. We blame God. We walk away from God. People turn against God because they see suffering in the world, and they say, how could God possibly exist? John Oliver when he was interviewed by Terry Gross, he's this late night kind of a news show, he answered the question, "Did you go to church a lot when you were growing up?" and he responded this way, "Quote, I did until I was like 11 or 12. And I just didn't believe it. There were too many there were there were some bad things that happened and I just didn't care. I didn't feel like there were any answers I liked coming from the church I went to. There were kids at school who died." And my uncle dying was really devastating to me. And I just didn't feel like mm, when you ask like a hard question and you were kind of brushed off saying, well, you know, it's God's will. That kind of knocked me out. That's true. I want nothing to do with this. But you can't just say it's God's will for these kids at school dying for no reason. That's just not good enough for me. You've got to wrestle with it a bit more. Quote, unquote. People look at the suffering in the world, say, I don't want anything to do with a God that allows that sort of a thing. Little do they see that God has a purpose that does have a purpose. Little do we know what it may be, but ultimately for our ultimate good and God's glory. But we look at suffering, and the Bible looks at suffering in at least two different categories. In at least two different categories, God explicitly states that there are at least a couple of categories of suffering. In First Peter, Peter makes that point. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief, evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. In verse 19, therefore, those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. There are those who suffer because they've committed a crime, the built-in suffering that God has planned in his course, by establishing authorities, by establishing laws, by establishing rules in which if you break those laws, there are consequences that God brings in. There's suffering because of that. There's also suffering because you are a Christian who is living a life that is righteous, and because of that, you face face difficulties. There are different categories of suffering, but all suffering, of course, is under the Sovereign ordination of God. And such was the suffering of Job that we find here. Such is the suffering of Job. Job, a very righteous individual, a character, a person who is of godly character. And yet he faces suffering. And if you put yourself in Job's shoes, here he is. He is living a life in which he is trying to do what is right and God calls him blameless. Yet he faces all of these things. If anybody on this earth would be able to say it's not fair, I'm sure he would have cried the same thing. So we look at his character first in verse 1 through 5. The Bible tells us that Job was this man, a godly man, a man who was blameless, a man who was upright, a man who feared God and he turned away from evil. He was a mature individual. He had Ten children, he would share, they would share meals together, he was wealthy, he was blessed, he had thousands of livestock and herds, he was a grower of crops, he was influential, he was the priest of his family. He was the priest of his family. He'd make offerings to the Lord every week for the sins of his children, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned against God, and I will do this. He was a wise, loving husband. In chapter 29, it tells us that he was highly respected among the people. He was a leader. He was a generous man. It says a wise leader. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 14, his righteousness, his righteousness is compared to that of Noah and of David. And in James five eleven, he is commended for his spiritual endurance. From the world's perspective, this was an upright, good man. This was a good man. From the world's perspective, he was undeserving of any calamity that would ever come to him. And from God's perspective, he too was a blameless, righteous man who feared God and turned away from evil. But then we see in verse 6 that these sons of God come before God. And I believe these are ref- a reference to angelic beings. These angelic beings come before God and Satan is among them. Satan is among them. And by the way, Satan is not his name. Satan is a title, okay? When you you go before a a court and you say, your honor, that's not his name. You know, you call a police officer who comes and gives you a ticket. You call him officer, so-and-so. Officer is not his name. It's a title. And so here, Satan is a title. And that title means adversary. It means adversary. And what Satan does is he continually accuses those who are Followers of God before God Himself. He continually accuses Christians before God, does whatever it takes to draw them away. Satan's ploy is to continue to sow to sow deception, false ideas, false teaching to test believers, to show that they are false, etc., to accuse God and to antagonize those who are believers. Here, Satan, the enemy, the adversary, he converses with God in verse 7. God says, from where do you come? And he's been roaming around the earth. And the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth. It says, a blameless, upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answers, and he says, look, the only reason why he's doing all of these things is because you bless the work of his hands, you're good to him, you put this hedge around him, you've protected him, but imagine if you take all of that away. If you take all of that away, he will curse you to your face. He will curse you to your face. That is the accusation. Take away all these things, and they will show you their true heart, that they aren't genuine. He wanted to prove that saving faith was not only a sham, that believers only follow God because you're good to them. You're good to them, God. And so God gives permission to Satan to take away everything from Job, to prove that his faith was genuine, to prove that Job's faith was sincere. The only thing he could not do was to afflict Job. And from this particular section of text, we learn three particular things about suffering. Number one, that God is involved. God is involved in suffering. God is involved in suffering. Some desire to keep God out of everything. They don't don't ascribe to God any type of calamity. They have this picture that God only does benevolent things, and God never brings calamity upon people. They probably never had read the Old Testament where God used Babylon to judge his own people, a wicked people, which was what the book of Habakkuk is all about. That Habakkuk cries out to God and says, God, my people, my people are wayward. They are sinning. There's violence in the land. And God says, don't worry. I will take care of it. I'm going to send the Babylonians as my instruments of judgment, as my instruments of judgment upon my people. And Habakkuk is... man who's just full of questions. He said, "How, how in the world could you do that? Because Babylon is even worse than our people. They are even more wicked than Israel, so how could you take them and use them to punish our own people? And God says to him, don't worry about that because judgment will come upon Babylon as well. But God is involved in calamity and suffering. Number two, Satan can do nothing unless God allows him. Not only is God involved in suffering, but Satan can do nothing unless God permits him to. Satan cannot harm anyone. He cannot bring calamity upon anyone. He cannot touch anyone unless God permits him to. Satan does not roam absolutely free to do anything that he so chooses. Even Satan is on the leash of God. That helps us not to fear. Not to be afraid of perhaps things that may be supernatural, that may come, that might antagonize those who are believers. Thirdly though, God has a purpose. He has a purpose for suffering and calamity. He has a purpose for suffering and calamity. We may not know, we may have a glimpse, but on the back side of it. At the end of life, many times we can look back and see how God has used difficulties in our lives to mold us, to make us into what he desires. It is like when we speak of trials in, in James chapter 1, when James says, Consider it all joy, my brother, when you face trials of many kinds. We're to have it all joy. Why? Because it produces endurance, and endurance will have its perfect works, so and we may be... We may be presented as complete. You know, and that whole passage speaks of these trials, and it, it pictures there as A.T. Robson pictures a, a word picture there, a picture of a, a person who is a, a metalsmith who takes uh, ore that is impure, considered all trials, and what that metalsmith does is he places that ore into the fire, And melts that metal so the dross, the impurities, will come to the top. And he'll scrape that off and he'll take that ore and put it back into the fire. Time and time again withdrawing it and scraping the dross off the top. Time and time again until when? He stops when he can look into that metal, that liquid metal and see a reflection of himself. That's the picture there that is trials because God places us into the fire of suffering until someday he can look into that metal and see a picture of Christ in our lives. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of many kinds because it produces endurance in your own life, godly character so that God can see Jesus in your life. So God is involved in suffering. Satan can do nothing unless God permits him to. And thirdly, God has a purpose for suffering and calamity. And we see that calamity come in verse 13. Calamity strikes Job. Verse 13, the oxen and donkey are taken by the Sabaeans who kill the servants, except for this one who runs to tell them. Fire comes down and consumes all the sheep and the goats. The Chaldeans stole the camels and killed the servants. And then all of his children are in the house, and wind comes, the house collapses, and they all die. In one short period of time, Job loses nearly everything he owns, his servants except for the four messengers, all ten of his children, and nearly everything he has is gone in one fell swoop. Not one servant is able to even finish what he is saying when another comes to tell him of some disaster that has happened to his family. Then later on, God permits suffering even of his own health. He has boils all over his body, the book of Job tells us. His face becomes so disfigured, the book of Job tells us, that he has no comfort. He has no comfort. He's so uncomfortable, and his wife, Mrs. Job, doesn't make it any easier. She says, curse God and die. And throughout the book of Job, the boils are not the only thing he suffers from. In chapter 2, verse 7, no, he has severe itching and irritation, 2, 7, and 8. He has great grief. Emotionally, he suffers, 2, 13. He loses his appetite, In three, twenty-four, He's extremely dis uncomfortable. 324. He has insomnia. He can't sleep. Chapter 7, verse 4. And then worms and dust get into his flesh. 7.5. And his boils, the Bible tells us in 7.5, begin to ooze, continually ooze. Then he has hallucinations. 7.14. And then 13.28 His skin decays, and in 16.8, 17.7, it shrivels up. His skin begins to shrivel, and then he has severe, severe halitosis in 19.17. Relentless pain in 30.17. His skin turns black, chapter 30, verse 30. He has a fever, same passage. And then he loses an incredible amount of weight in 33.21. And not only that, in Job 19, 18 and the following, it tells us about the fact that when he gets up, kids, kids make fun of him, make fun of him. Then all of his former associates, they ignore him, they shun him, all of his loved ones have turned against him. There is near complete rejection. Not only does he face the outward circumstances, but he faces his body decaying, his flesh having all sorts of issues, his own skin faces the rejection, the ridicule of children and other associates. That's the severity of his suffering. And of course, he begins to fall into despair. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, afterwards, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He didn't curse God, but he Cursed the day of his birth, and in despair he wishes that he had never been born. Verse 11 of chapter 3. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. All of these things, socially, emotionally, physically, and then he's loss of all that he has. Then, to heap all of that on, the book of Job chronicles... For us a series of dialogues. Three dialogues from his friends. His friends Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Friends who came to see him. Came to see him and they did what was wise. For a short period of time. They didn't say anything. That was probably the best thing they could have done. They just sat there. And then they began to make assumptions. They began to make conclusions. And then it was worse than them being there. Eliphaz says in verse 7 of chapter 4, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. In other words, uh, you must have done something wrong. You're not innocent. That's why you're suffering all this. Or where were the upright destroyed? According to all I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish. And by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. In other words, oh, look, all suffering, he says, in my experience, is because of personal sin. You must have sinned. Therefore, that's why you're facing all of these things. You sow what you reap. Worse yet, he says in verse 12, he tells Job and following, it's because he had some word of God or vision or something in his sleep. And, you know, you've got some sort of issue here because God told me. His friends chime in, and they get right to the fact that, hey, you know what? If you sin, you suffer. You must be sinning. You are sinning. The wicked are short-lived. Bad advice. No, it might be so. It might be so, but many times we don't know. We don't know that you do sow what you reap, and sin does have its consequences as we looked at in 1st Peter that if suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an adulterer, yes, you'll face consequences, you will suffer. But there are those who suffer because of doing what is right and God has a power and purpose that you may not know. But suffice it to say we see from this account one thing is that calamity may come at any time. You may have your family, me And you may have your finances lined up. You may have your home. You may have whatever it may be, your health. And the next day, it could be all gone. It could be all gone. You could be walking down the street. You may trip and fall and hit your head, lose your ability to ever walk again. You may be the target or next to the target of some terrorist attack. You may be the victim of a crime. You may be traveling on any bridge in the US, and that bridge may collapse. You do not know what the future holds. Calamity is around the corner for many people, and Jesus uses that. He uses this idea of calamity. If you look in Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13 tells about a calamity and tells of the particular perspective of the people back then. Luke chapter 13, these people come to Jesus. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1, it says, now... On the same occasion, there were some present, okay? There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So these people come and they talk to Jesus. They say, look, there are some whose Galileans, their their blood was mixed because of Pilate. And, And Jesus says to them, Or I should say, Jesus says to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what's happening here? Well, some people came to Jesus and asked about these Galileans, okay? These Galileans had come down to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. So geographically, the Galileans, they were up north, and then you had the area of Samaria, and then you had the Judean Jews, and you had Jerusalem there among Judea. And so the Galileans had to come south quite a ways. And the Galileans were not looked upon as very, very highly at all. They were looked upon as people who were uneducated, people who didn't have good manners, people who were sometimes even thieves, people who just were the backwards hillbillies of that time. What do they know? Those Galileans. That's how the Judean Jews looked at the Galileans. That's why when Jesus had many of his disciples who were Galileans, they were kind of looked down upon by those who were more snobbish. These Galileans had come down to make sacrifices at the temple. And... A number of them were killed by Pilate. A number of them were killed by Pilate, and their blood was mixed with the sacrificial blood near, near the altar, some occasion that was there. And Jesus says to them, do you think because these Galileans were killed that somehow they were greater sinners because they had faced this death, a death by Pilate? Do you think that? I tell you no, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Because he knew what the people were thinking. He knew that the people thought, because of this tragedy that happened to them, they must have been, those Galileans, they probably deserved what they got coming to them. That's what they would think. Those wicked, backwards, uneducated Galileans, they probably deserved that. And Jesus says, no. Unless you repent, you too will face that death, not worse. And he says, oh, so you, how about the 18 people who were killed by the tower in Siloam? It fell, and it killed them. And do you think that they were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? In other words, there's this tower. There was a tower in Siloam. Fell down. What we might consider, oh, that bridge collapsed, and, and those people perished underneath that bridge, or whatever might have happened does he say, do you think that they, they were killed, they were worse culprits than all of the men who live in Jerusalem? Do you think all the people who live are better because they didn't face this calamity? Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no. Tragedy happened to the Galileans. What happened to the people in Siloam, it fell upon them, both good people and bad people, quote, unquote. The question is not, well, were they good, deserved it or not? The question is, you had better take a lesson from this that your life is just as short, that you too can face calamity and you'd better be right with God. Repent and turn to God. Unless you repent, you too may perish. Unless you too will understand that life can be taken away at any time. So Job too. All of these things were taken away by Satan. God permitted that to happen for a purpose. What did Job do? What was his response? Back to Job chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose. He tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. When somebody tore their clothes and they shaved their head, it was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief. It was a sign of, of great distress and mourning. But rather than cursing God, rather than blaming God, whether than being angry at God, whether than being angry at others or whatnot, no... He fell to the ground and he worshipped. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. He surrendered himself to God and he worshipped God. And he acknowledged that he came into the world with nothing. That he came with nothing and nothing he would take away. He acknowledged that everything he had was given to him by God. Because it was given to him by God, God had every right to take it away. You think of... When your children were really very small, they had nothing. They had nothing. What you give to them as a child, you give to them a particular toy, you give to them a particular whatever it may be, and it becomes what? Mine. It's so hard to take away. Imagine taking away your child's smartphone. Mine. They get mad. That's how it is. They remember that they weren't born with a smartphone in their hand. Lord has given me my life, my family, my friends. Lord has given to you your health, food on the table. You don't have to run in fear around here for your safety. We don't have to worship in some cowering type of cave. We have our own Bibles. We can study the Bible in public. I can do all of those things, and it's by God's grace. But if I had none, well, God has every right to take away everything that we have, right? Right? God gave, God has the right to take it away, even via the authorities above me. God has every right to take it away. The Bible says through all of this, God did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now we look into the book of Job and Job did later on have some complaints that he lodged against God. He had some complaints that he lodged against God because after all of that suffering, he began to say things such as in 13.3 and 13.24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? In other words, the sentiment that Job says, uh, number one was, God, you don't hear me. I pray to you, why do you hide your face? Why don't you hear my prayers? Through all this suffering, why don't you hear my prayers and answer my prayers? I've asked of something good from you. I've asked God that you take away or give back to me good health or give me a good future. Why is it, God, that you don't hear my prayers? Why is it, God, that somebody I love isn't saved? I've prayed for them for decades and even near the end of their life. Why, God? You don't hear me. Why do you hide your face? Job said that. Job said, God is punishing me. Chapter 6, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 20. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. We think, too, God, why are you punishing me? God may be punishing you. He may be disciplining you. God does discipline those that He loves, but also God may have a purpose in that suffering. And that suffering purpose may be that you might focus more on Him. Another complaint that he lodges is that God allows the wicked to prosper. God allows the wicked to prosper. Not only does God not hear me, not only does God punish me, Joe says, God allows the wicked to prosper, chapter 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? Hmm. We compare ourselves to others when suffering comes. Why is it that I get the short end of the stick and that person who's not even a Christian gets that promotion? Why do they succeed and why do they get that? How come they're... God, that's so not right. That is so not fair. I go to church on Sundays. I give to you. I, I worship you. I do everything that I can. Why is that so unfair? God allows the wicked to prosper, Job says, and he defends himself with all of these complaints. And when God at the end says to Job, in effect, I am God. Where were you? Where were you, oh, small little Job? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I do all of these things? And Job has nothing to say because we don't have anything that we are entitled to aside from what God himself has promised to us. We can become self-righteous. We say to ourselves, I'm I'm innocent. I deserve better and tempted to think the Christian life isn't worth it. But God, in His wisdom, is completely just. He is completely fair. He is completely fair, and God is not not a God to be bargained with. We are to say, God, I came into this world with nothing, and whatever I have, you have every right to take away. We're not entitled to anything. We love to carry that stick around, and we blame God by blaming others. But God is a just God. When tragedy and problems come in our lives, what happens? Problems or tragedy comes in our lives, what happens? Well, what you really believe and what's on the inside begins to show. It's like a fruit that might look good on the outside, nice skin, when you cut it open, it can be good and fresh, or it can be completely rottened out. When temptation comes, what's in the heart really shows. There's an account just within the past couple of years of a man named Don. Don McConchie. He's the Vice President of Government Affairs at Americans United for Life, and he was riding his motorcycle through the suburban intersection. In Washington, when there was a car that came into his lane and pushed him into oncoming traffic. He was riding his motorcycle. He woke up two weeks later in a level one trauma center, and he was a mess. Half a dozen broken ribs. He had a deflated left lung. He had a broken clavicle. His shoulder blade was broken. Five broken vertebrae in his back. But amongst all of those broken bones, he also had a spinal cord injury. It left him a paraplegic. And the neurosurgeon told his wife that it would be a miracle if he'd ever walk again. Eight years later, he's still in a wheelchair. He says this, quote, What I learned, Dan said, is that this life isn't for our comfort. Instead, the purpose of this life is that we become conformed to the image of Christ. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen when everything is unicorns and rainbows. It instead happens when life is tough, when we are forced to rely upon God through prayer just to make it through the day. That is, when He is most at work in our lives, molding us into what He designed us to. To be, My prayers are different today, he writes, than they were eight years ago. Back then, I looked at God like Santa Claus. I asked him to send nice things my way. And now, I have one prayer that I pray more than any other. Quote, Lord, may I be able to say at the end of today that I was faithful, Is that what you pray at the end of the day? That at the end of the day, you can look back at the day that you had just lived and say, Lord, may I be faithful. I was faithful today. Because when life is difficult, when we face suffering, we are to worship God. God, the response is not to sin, not to walk away in anger, not to pursue our own happiness, not to cry it's not fair, not to follow the world, not to decide to take our matters into our own hands so we can decide for ourselves what we think is best. No, it is to be able to say, I've been faithful to the word of God. For naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all of this, neither to sin nor to blame God. Let's bow in prayer. Our God in heaven, we come before you as we join our hearts together, knowing that each of us faces problems and each of us will face problems. I pray, Father, that Through these struggles, you would show us what is in our own heart that we might see and desire to be conformed to the image of your Son. Help us, Lord, not to walk with an attitude of entitlement before you, but to realize, O God, that it is you who gives, it is you who takes away. And Father, for us to fully submit to your wisdom, To your plan, no matter what it may be, I pray, O Father, may you grant us that grace so that when tragedy does happen, when disappointments do come, when suffering does occur, I pray, God, we might walk in your grace, still giving you praise, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. In Jesus' name, amen.